James chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. James chapter 2. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The Old Testament reading is Psalm 19. The he- uh, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What comes to mind when you think about the law? Maybe you immediately think about that panic when you see those flashing lights in the rearview mirror. Uh, Or maybe you think about the compassionless legalism of Inspector Javert from the musical Les Miserables. Um, but what, if, what would you think if you met somebody who saw the law as beautiful? Uh, somebody who thought it was sweet like honey or more precious than gold, who thought the law was joyous? Well, that's precisely what David says in this psalm. David sees the law as God's gift, 
designed to bring us joy and life. And that's what he talks about in this psalm. This psalm comes right after the grand deliverance of Psalm 18. David has been waiting for deliverance from his enemies for 10 psalms, all the way from Psalm 9, and then finally Psalm 18, God delivers him. Uh, And now David pens this psalm about the law. Maybe you remember another psalm about God's law all the way back in Psalm 1. That's how the whole Psalter starts. It talks about this, uh, the, how blessed the man is who, fall, who knows God's law, who walks in God's law. He's like a plant, planted by streams of water that flourishes. Now here we are 18 Psalms later, and David's seen the evidence of the truth of Psalm 1 in his life. He's had to walk through a lot of suffering because of his obedience to God, but now he's been vindicated. So after many psalms of doubting whether following God does any good, David turns to extol the goodness of God's law now that he's experienced God's deliverance. So we'll explore this psalm in three points. First, we're going to see the beauty of, the, of God's law. Then we're going to look at the problem of sin. And finally, we'll talk about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. So our first point. David wants us to see the beauty of God's law. He does that by comparing the law with the heavens, the sky. Both the heavens and the law reveal the glory of God. David starts with the heavens, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. According to David, the heavens speak. They talk, they shout, they proclaim the glory of God. What does that, what does that mean? Kids, have you ever heard the sky talking? Can you imagine what would it be, what would it be like tomorrow if the sun rose and it was screaming at you? Can you imagine that? When David says that the heavens declare God's glory, he's using a metaphor, a picture. The sky speaks by shining. After all, the glory of God, that word glory, frequently is revealed as a light. And that light is reflected by the heavens. Uh, They offer a continual display. Night and day, as verse 2 says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. No matter what time you look up, provided there's not too much cloud cover, you'll see the lights up there. And this display stretches across the whole earth. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So if the heavens speak always and everywhere about God, what do they say about him? Well, first of all, They show us the wisdom and power of God as creator. They are, as verse 1 says, God's handiwork, which is a a fun Bible word that just means the work of God's hands. Uh, God made them. And if the heavens are impressive to you, have you ever looked up and been at least a little bit impressed? Uh, Their vastness and brilliance, how much greater must be the person who made them? So the heavens show us how great and wise and powerful God is. 
but they also provide us with a picture of what it looks like to obey God. God has given them their assigned places and times. He's marked out the paths of the stars and the sun and the moon and the sky, and they follow them without deviation. something people have noticed from ancient times, that they fo- the, the movement of the heavens follows an order. God has given them their places, and they follow the, follow, do the job he's given them. David specifically focuses in here on the sun. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The sun doesn't just obey God's decree grudgingly or reluctantly. Kids, have you ever... Have your parents ever asked you to do something and you obeyed them but you did it slowly and you whined and you just you did not do it happily or quickly that's not how the son obeys God when God tells the son to go the son runs and rejoices to do what God tells him to do. He goes so fast, he goes all the way around the world in 24 hours. David tells us that the sun is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. I think I've, I've heard sermons before, you know, the, the traditional illustration is to, a, you know, the groom who's standing at the front on the wedding day and how happy he looks. But that's actually the wrong end of the wedding because the chamber here is, especially the, is actually the honeymoon suite. It's the other end of the wedding we're talking about. So what I'm saying is that, according to David, um, the son is like somebody who's just consummated his marriage. And he runs through the heavens like a strong man or a warrior. The big point to get here is the joy of it all. The ecstasy and the pleasure. Uh, The son follows the circuit God has set him with joy, bringing light and heat to the whole world. God's decree is not here to shut down joy, but to enable it. As the heavenly lights follow their assigned paths, they come to reflect the light of God's glory through their own light, and obedience leads to this glorious light and overflowing joy. So, David shows us that the heavens speak by shining. Just by shining, they tell us something about God. Next, he turns to the law, and we find here that the pattern is reversed. Whereas the heavens speak by shining, the law shines by speaking. If you look through much of the figurative languages, language in verses 8 through 12, a lot of it is light imagery. Verse 9 says the commandment of the Lord is pure. That word pure evokes refined, precious metals. And that comes back again in verse 10, doesn't it? With the comparison to fine gold. You know, why do people like gold and silver so much? It's part of the reason is the way they catch and reflect the lights. And so God's commandment enlightens the eyes of the one who studies it. And even the word in verse 11 for warned, when it says, by them your servant is warned, is a pun in Hebrew. It sounds like another Hebrew verb that means to shine. So there's a lot of light imagery here. There's also the imagery of honey, 
The law isn't just bright and shining, it's also delicious, sweet, and nourishing. They didn't have candy back then, kids. They didn't have chocolate, at least in the Middle East. Um, so honey was what, what, you know, what they had to, had to go, go, go with. And if you've ever, I love honey. I don't know if you like honey as much as I do, but I love honey. It's delicious. That's what God's law is like. The overall point, again, is that God's command brings life and joy. Verse 7 says that the law revived the soul. I might translate that a little differently as the law restores life. Um, And verse 8 says that it rejoices the heart. The law brings life and joy. And it's lasting satisfaction. Verse 9 says that fearing God, which means respecting and obeying God, endures forever. And verse 12 says that keeping the law brings great reward. The law is for our good, our nourishment, and our joy. So how does the law do this? How does the law do these wonderful things? Well, to see that, we have to go through each of the attributes of the law here. Each one could probably get its own sermon, but I'm going to go through them rather quickly and and summarize them. So verse 7, the law is perfect. You know, you can learn a lot about how to live your life by listening to Aristotle or Immanuel Kant or Dr. Phil, but they're all humans. They get things wrong. You have to be careful and listen to them through a filter, don't you? Not God's law, though. It's perfect. No errors. The testimony of the Lord is sure, or we could translate faithful, reliable. If you put your trust in it, it won't let you down. It makes the simple wise. If you want to live a good life, you can't just memorize a set of rules. You need to understand what life is really about. God's law can teach you. Verse 8, the precepts of the Lord are right or morally upright. God's laws don't serve evil ends or perpetuate injustice as so many human laws do. God's laws flow from the moral goodness of his own character, and so they're always morally good. The commandment of the Lord is pure, and verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, pure and clean. God's law isn't mixed. It's not corrupted with unrighteousness. And in following it, we become cleansed and made fit to stand in his presence. The rules of the Lord are true. They're not arbitrary, but they tell the truth about reality, what human life was supposed to be. They are righteous altogether, or we could translate completely just. God doesn't side with the rich and the powerful. He doesn't take a bribe, but rather he champions the cause of the oppressed. Verse 11, God's commands warn his servant. To benefit from God's law, you have to put yourself in a posture of the simple person who needs wisdom, of the sinner who needs correction. But if you do, the law will warn you when you are headed on a dangerous path. Finally, in keeping them, there is great reward. While we shouldn't follow God's laws for purely mercenary reasons, nevertheless, they do come with rewards not only in the life to come, but also in this life. If you, live, if you live life God's way, you will generally live a wiser and happier life. 
So there you have a lot of different facets of what makes God's law good. And if I can try to sum them all up, God's law is for our good. It's designed to bring us light and wisdom and joy. Let me ask you, is that how you tend to think about God's law? Do you, or do you tend to see God as a killjoy, somebody who's out to ruin your fun? That's Satan's oldest strategy, isn't it? Do you remember the story in the garden? God had given Adam and Eve all the beautiful trees in the garden, which the story tells us were very desirable. But Satan tried to get them to focus on that one tree that God had said not to eat. And he convinced them that God had banned it out of selfish motives. And you remember when he convinced them that there was some wisdom and likeness to God that he didn't want them to have, and that's why he banned the tree. But the truth was that God's commandment was there for their protection. I think sometimes we can get a little confused about this in reform circles. Um, we say that God does all things for his own glory, which is true. But we can misunderstand that to mean that God acts selfishly like he just wants to get glory from us. Or it could sound like God's law is arbitrary, like he enjoys forcing us to obey something just because he's more powerful than us. But we forget that God's glory just is the light of who he is. And when we glorify him, it's just us receiving that light and reflecting it back. We might use phrases like to give God glory and to make God glorious, which are perfectly fine phrases, but actually God has no need for us to give him anything or to make him anything. So even when we give God glory, God is the one who is really giving and we are receiving. Only God is able to be purely giving and never receiving. Um, the purpose of God's law is that he might give himself to us by enabling us to become like him. So when we say that God's law is good, we mean that it aims at human life and human joy. But of course, we can only have that joy if we rejoice in God. The truth is that God gave us his law for our good, for our life, for our joy. So don't miss the beauty of God's law. It reflects his determination to bring us joy. So that's the first point. God gave his people a law to bring them joy. But there's a problem here, isn't there? Maybe you've already spotted it. God's law only brings joy if, what? You obey it. If you follow it. If you do it. We read that quote from Leviticus 18 earlier, right? In the call to confession. The law says, if you do this, you will live by it. But what happens when we turn to Israel's history? What do we find? They don't do it, do they? Rather, they discover something inside their hearts. Sin. Their hearts are bent towards disobeying and rebelling against God. You see, the law is only good news if the problem of sin can be dealt with. David knows this. David realizes that, and so that's where he turns next. And the rest of the psalm deals with his sin. Verses 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David distinguishes a few different levels of sin here. Uh, First, he mentions errors. This is actually a very technical term he uses from the law of Moses for a kind of sin that's sometimes translated as a mistake or unintentional sin. It means a sin that's committed out of some kind of ignorance. Either you didn't understand the consequences of your actions, or you didn't know God's law well enough to understand that the thing you're doing was sinful. Maybe you've had the experience where you were doing something without even thinking about it. Um, But then someone came to you and explained to you that what you did or said really hurt someone. And you realized you'd been sinning this whole time without realizing it. Or maybe as you grew as a Christian in your understanding of the Bible and who Jesus is, you started to realize that there was this part of your life that was just out of line with what God wanted from you. That's this type of sin. That's where David starts. Next, David mentions hidden faults. These are the sins that we're not yet aware of Perhaps even sin patterns that are so, so deeply ingrained in us, we're not even conscious of them. Occasionally, one meets people who are not aware of any sin that they need to confess. I, I don't know if that's ever happened to you. Sometimes one even hears Christians claim that they're free of all known sin. But that doesn't mean they're perfect, does it? Just because they're not aware of any sin in their hearts. In 1 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul says, I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Great wisdom on the account of the Apostle Paul. Sin is that that deeply rooted in us, affecting our whole minds and wills so that we are often not even aware of the depth of our own sinfulness. Well, the good news for David about unintentional sin and hidden sin is that the law of Moses provides sacrifices to atone for those sins. You want to check this out? You can go to Leviticus 4 and 5. I'm sure it's already one of your favorite life verses is somewhere in Leviticus 4 or 5. Uh, Or Numbers 15. That's why David asked the Lord, Lord to declare me innocent. And in fact, I'd actually translate that, forgive me. He asked to forgive, the Lord to forgive him because these sins can be forgiven through the sacrificial system. But there's another kind of sin as well. And we find it in verse 13. Presumptuous sins. Arrogant sins. Sins done knowing full well how wrong they are. Sins done out of an active disdain for God. Numbers 15 calls these sins of the high hands. Uh, a metaphorical expression for arrogance. And while there can be forgiveness for unintentional sin, Numbers 15 makes it clear that the high-handed sinner must be put to death. Numbers 15.31 says, Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. This is the sort of sin that you have abandoned yourself to. It's taken over your life. That's why David says, let them not have dominion over me. These are the sins that rule over you. 
And notice David doesn't ask for forgiveness from this kind of sin, rather, but rather asks God to keep him back from it. Now, some of you may know that David does actually commit one or a couple of these sins in his life. And he has to throw himself on God's extraordinary mercy, going beyond the bounds of what's specified in the sacrificial system of the law of Moses. If you want to read more about that, that's Psalm 51. But here in this psalm, David does not imagine the possibility of forgiveness for this type of sin. Because he knows that under Moses' law, such sins invariably carry the penalty of death. Here David says that if he can be forgiven his sins of ignorance and kept back from great transgression, then he will be blameless before God. In other words, he himself will come to resemble the glory of God's law. This word for blameless here is the same Hebrew root that describes the perfection of the law in verse 7. So just as the law is perfect, David comes to resemble this. Again, notice this isn't perfect sinlessness. Um, David has mentioned his sins being forgiven, but it's a matter of being right with God um, through, through seeking to obey God and having one's sins forgiven. David ends the psalm with a last request. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's another reminder that David recognizes how deep Sin goes. It's not just a matter of what you do, but of what you say, and even what you think. The kind of perfection God's law demands means being purified even in our thoughts. That's a tall order, isn't it? If you're like me, then you know that the thoughts in your heart are very often not godly, but disobedient to God and hateful towards other people. Kids, has there ever been a time when you didn't do anything wrong, but you really, really wanted to, and you couldn't stop thinking about it? That's how deep our desire for disobedience goes. It's why we need God's grace so deeply. David recognizes this, and that's why he, says, he realizes if he's going to make any progress in holiness, it will only be because of God's help. So he ends the psalm with the reminder that God is his rock and his redeemer. God is the one who has to rescue David from his sinful heart. So let's apply this point to ourselves this evening. Are you aware of your sin? Are you willing to become aware of your sin? The psalm teaches us that sin goes deep, that our errors can be hidden deep within our hearts. So if we claim to be Christians, if we know that we're sinners, we should be willing to hear about our sin. We should expect that there's sin to be discovered. For example, how do you react when someone confronts you with sin? When someone comes to you and says, you've done something wrong. If you know that you're a sinner, you won't react defensively. You won't just try to say that it's their fault for being offended. Now, they could be wrong, right? Not everybody who comes to us and thinks they see sin in our lives is wise and discerning. I'm sure we've all had experiences 
uh, with people who are not good counselors in that respect. But even if you think they are wrong, if you know the depth and deceptiveness of sin, you'll say, let me pray about it. Let me seek the counsel of wise friends who won't let me off the hook. Um, And even if I haven't committed that particular sin, uh, I know I've committed others just as bad, and I have no grounds for arrogance. Let me ask you, how are you doing with that this evening? Are you somebody who is open to being shown their sin? It's a necessary beginning to the struggle and fight against sin in our lives to be open to hearing about it. So that's the second point. God, David is asking God to forgive his sin and keep him from sin, both small and great. This is where we're going to leave David today. He delights in the gift of the law, but he also recognizes his own need for forgiveness. But we can't stop there this evening. Because in Jesus, we have a fuller revelation of God's will than the law of Moses. Okay, so how does Jesus change our understanding of God's law? Well, the first big difference is that Jesus has fulfilled the law by perfectly obeying it in our place and giving his life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. That means that our acceptance with God is not on the basis of our faithfulness in keeping the law, but on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness in having kept the law for us. And Jesus' sacrifice brings an even greater forgiveness for sins. If you look in Acts 13, 39, Paul says that those who believe in Jesus are justified from everything from which they could not be justified under the law of Moses. Paul is an expert in the law. He knows, I'm sure he knows Leviticus 4 and 5 well, and Numbers 15. And he knows that there are limits to what the sacrificial system of Moses can do. But the forgiveness in Jesus is far greater. And what good news that is for Paul, who certainly had committed some sin of the high hands before he became a believer. Um, Jesus' perfect life and death in fulfilling the law on our behalf, means that we are now freed from the need to earn our standing before God by our works, but we are instead justified freely by his grace uh, from all sin, even sin of the high hands. If we repent, we can be forgiven. So, since we have been saved by grace, next question, does that mean that now obedience is not important? The law is done away with, we can just... Live however we want. Is that, is that what it means? Not at all. The same Jesus who frees us from the penalty of sin also delivers us from the dominion of sin, the rule of sin, so that, so that we can live lives of obedience to God. Let's see how James puts this in, in James 2, 12-13. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James says that we are subject to the law of liberty, a law of freedom. We no longer relate to the law as slaves to sin, but as children of God who have been set free by Jesus. And that means we've received mercy instead of judgment. 
mercy triumphs over judgment. So now that we have received God's free grace and mercy, James is pushing us to show mercy to others in a very pointed way because the people he's writing the letter to need to hear that. Uh, Paul says something similar in Romans 8, 1 to 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So there's a law of sin and death, the law that says do this and live, but then there is a law of the Spirit, the law the Spirit writes on our heart that says because Christ has done this, so there is no longer any condemnation for you, so walk according to the Spirit and put sin to death. So, bringing this together, how should you as a Christian relate to the law? In two ways. First, let the law drive you to Christ. Don't just see the law as a record of God's will, which you don't measure up to. See the law as a mirror of Christ, who has measured up to it. Jesus fulfills each of the attributes of the law that we see in this psalm. Go through them again very quickly. Jesus is perfect. He fulfilled the whole of God's law, and he didn't hold back his obedience even once. Jesus was faithful. He trusted in God's will his whole life until the end. Jesus grew in wisdom by studying God's law. Jesus was morally upright, keeping far away from doing evil. Jesus kept himself pure, worthy to stand in God's presence. Jesus is himself the truth who shows us who we are truly meant to be. Jesus was completely just. He was angry at injustice and took the side of the oppressed. Jesus heeded the warnings of the law to flee from sin. And Jesus persevered through suffering to receive a reward from God. Every good and sweet thing the law points to is fulfilled in the goodness of who Jesus is. This makes the law so much more good and sweet than it could ever be as just the record of how we should obey God. This is the law fulfilled for us in Jesus. So when you're tempted to feel that God couldn't forgive you, like God couldn't love you, Look to Jesus. Realize that specific sin which you struggle with that makes you feel so unworthy, Jesus obeyed that law specifically in your place so that you could be redeemed. Let the law point you to Christ. Secondly, in your fight with sin, put Jesus in the center of your struggle with sin. Don't just try to handle it by yourself. And don't fall into the trap of trying to earn God's favor. Call out to him for help. Realize that you can only make progress in the Christian life by the power of the Spirit showing you your sin and writing God's law on your heart. This is a great encouragement for us to kill sin in ourselves. We've been freed from sin's dominion and it won't ultimately be able to hold us. Now, it's true that we only make the first beginnings in righteousness in this life, and that we experience many falls and failures in our Christian life. But the good news is that our perseverance to the end doesn't just depend on us. 
Ultimately, God the Holy, Holy Spirit is the one who forms us into the image of Christ. We haven't just been given Jesus' perfect obedience on our behalf, but we've also been given the Spirit who comes into our hearts and is at work in our lives. And ultimately, he is the one who changes us as slowly as that sometimes goes. So as you battle with sin in your actions and in your words and in your thoughts, remember that it is God who saves you. And say with David, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He is your rock, the redeemer who will see you safely through to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making your will known to us who are so lost in our sin. We thank you that you've not only revealed our sin, that you've not only revealed the way we ought to live our lives, but in the face of our inability to obey, you have revealed Jesus, your own Son, taken on human flesh, placing himself under the law to perfectly obey it in our behalf. How much more beautiful does that make your law now that we don't stand under its curse, but instead under the blessing that Jesus has given us? Be with us this week. Help us to flee from temptation. Help us to hate our sin. Help us to listen to those who point it out to us. Uh, And most of all, help us to know the depth of the forgiveness that is given to us through Christ, that we can come running back to you in our failure, and turn to you and receive love, forgiveness, and the assurance that you're, you are not done with the, what you are at work with in us. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>